may be seated. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Cassie. My husband Alex and I lead Midtown together. Uh, we moved here to plant the church, but I was not from here originally. Alex uh, was. I was from Cincinnati, Ohio. Any Ohioans? I always throw it out there. Anyone from Ohio? No. See, when that does happen, I'm always like, oh, age! And everyone says, Ohio, oh, and it's so great. But anyway, uh, I never, yeah, never lived here. So when we moved here two years ago, or two, two and a half, however long it was, um, we were sitting down with like, a pastor who's pastored here for 50 years. He's like the grandfather of pastors here in Kansas City. He's a, he's a great guy. Uh, he actually, when we first uh, met him, he was like, hey, uh, we meet at the Chipotle, and you'll know it's me because I'm a big guy with a cowboy hat. And I'm like, what in the world? Like, what are we getting ourselves into? And it turns out he's like one of the best people in the whole world. But anyway, uh, he told us, I, I asked him, I said, what is like your number one piece of advice for pastors who are new to the Kansas City area? And he was like, well, here's what I'm going to tell you. You can't compete with the Chiefs. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like expecting something really like spiritual, deep, like, you know, about the formation of my soul. No, you can't compare the Chiefs. So I have learned since then uh, that truly the most holy people in church who do not bow down to the idols of the Chiefs actually come to church on Sunday when the Chiefs play at noon. So congratulations. So proud of you all. I'm just kidding. Some of you are going to be like, wow, the people that didn't come today, so much shade this week. I'm just kidding. I messed around. Okay, passing serious focus. Uh, we are actually going to talk about a little bit more of a serious topic today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about presence and absence. Presence and absence. The absence that we sometimes feel from God, but the knowledge of the presence that he is and that he brings. I want to open up with a little short story. Uh, there's a woman named Kathleen Mansfield Murray who wrote a relatable but crushing story of isolation and loneliness entitled Miss Brill. Miss Brill. And this story very much reflects Kathleen's own life in that Kathleen uh, lived a pretty tragic existence. Uh, that sounds like a pretty mean thing to say about someone's life, but over the course of her very short life, she experienced unrequited love, a broken marriage, financial dependency, bankruptcy, and the death of her brother on the battlefield, war, uh, and finally illness, which led to her death at the near age of 34. Like, all that happened before she was 34 years of age. In context, I am six years from being 34 years of age. I'm like, wow, that's a lot. Uh, and so in many of her short stories in her work, we see this pain, this isolation felt, and we particularly see it in this story entitled Miss Brill. Miss Brill is an English teacher who lives near the public parks, parks in a French town, uh, and she is headed to the park that morning, delighted in the fact that she got to wear her fur. Several of you, this was you this week when you walked outside and you were like, I'm going to put on my fur or my sweater in, in our world. So she delights in the fact that she's putting her fur on. She's going to the park as she normally does on Sunday. And she sits on this public park bench. She looks around and she thinks, wow, you know, there's more people here than usual. Probably the weather being so nice. And she's sitting and enjoying the weather. And uh, as she's sitting there, people watching, as many of us do, uh, she sees a band in the park and they begin to play. And she imagines that this band is like an orchestra pit at a musical or at a play, and all the parkours are people, are actors, or actresses in this play, dancing, singing, 
performing this musical number with so much joy and excitement, and she looks at this scene playing on around her, and we see that she begins to cry. And at this point, the story you know something's wrong. The story goes on to give a little bit more detail about what happened in that park. But then she begins to make her way back home. And we see as she makes her way back home, uh, she usually buys a slice of cake. That's her Sunday treat. I'm like, yeah, I get this woman. She buys a slice of cake on her way home. But she doesn't this Sunday. She walks up the stairs to her cupboard-like apartment room, sits down on her bed. She sits for a really, really long time. The box is there on the bed where the fur is housed. She opens the lid. She quickly takes off the fur without looking at it, sets it into the box, and as she begins to close the lid, she hears something cry. This story conveys the vivid depth of Miss Brill's isolation and loneliness. The fur is meant to uncomfortably parallel her life. It's removed from its small, dark box, mimicking the, mimicking the cupboard of an apartment in which she lives. It's brought out into the light, shown off to people, ready to go on an adventure, only to observe the life and the vitality of others without truly experiencing it itself. Return to that lonely box, dejected, old, useless idol, who once again is alone and cries. We all have moments in life where we feel this isolation and acute loneliness. We can feel so proximately close to others, like people are around us, but we feel really far from them in our soul. And in a really cruel way, it feels like everyone around us is living this fairy tale life, like actors and actresses in some musical or play. And instead of getting to be an actress or actor, instead of getting to have a role in the play, we merely sit and watch on like an audience. And in certain seasons of life, we feel this pain not just in our earthly relationships, but with God. God's supposed to be really, really near, but yet he feels really, really far. You watch other followers of Jesus as an observer of a play. You sit among people today who are caught up in the presence of God, rejoicing, clapping, raising their hands, crying tears of joy or sadness, but you just don't feel anything. You don't feel anything at all. You find yourself wondering, like, why can't I relate? You feel crazy. You wonder, is there something wrong with me? Is it my personality? Is it sin? Am I not practicing the spiritual disciplines enough? Or worse, is this God? Is God a, not a God of compassion? Is he even real? Is faith a smokescreen? Is he there? You may find yourself crying out the words of songwriter Karen Torndorf, Will you let me see God if you are there? You think you're the only one in the room, but let me, uh, let me get you in on a little secret here. You're not. And you're also not crazy. Many of us have moments in life where God, we feel God's absence more than we feel God's presence. And for us, it can be really, really discouraging. 
Doubt can sink in. We begin to wonder if God is really there at all. But today, we are going to see that God really is there. That he always has been there. And that he actually dwells in us. And so today, if you would, turn in your Bibles or use that app to get to Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. This is where we're going to kind of be camping out today. Uh, but before we do that, you obviously heard us and hopefully recited with us the Apostles' Creed today. Normally, we have somebody come up and do a scripture reading for us. But for the last several uh, weeks, this past fall, really, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed line by line by line. And some of you may be wondering, like, why would you work through creed, right? Isn't it normal? We usually work through scriptures. Yes, yes, that's the answer. But the reason why we do work through creed, why we wanted to do that this fall, is because the Apostles' Creed is a prayer designed to actually summarize the fullness of scripture, or Jesus' life. It's a way of us getting to fully look at and understand in a really concise way what our faith means, what it is, and how we live it out. This liturgical prayer that we just said together was actually written in the 4th century by the Western Catholic Church. And as we work through it this fall, our hope is that we actually discover how our story fits into the broader story of Scripture. Last week, Alex kind of unpacked the story of Emmaus. We were invited to sit in that story to imagine what that story would have been like as Jesus walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we learned that Jesus not only died, right, but that he rose again. And although the story of Jesus living, dying, and rising from the dead gets a lot of deserved attention, and it should, right, that's a good thing, we sometimes overlook another very crucial yet mysterious element of the gospel narrative. And that's where we find ourselves today. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He referring to Jesus. This brings us to our scripture passage, Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. At this point in the narrative, Jesus has gathered his disciples. He's already died. He's rose again. And he wants to give them some parting words. So we read in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way that you saw him go. Matthew Bates, in his book Salvation by Allegiance Alone, actually refers to ascension as one of the most important parts of the gospel message for today. But widely, it's not really discussed in our church circles, and so we don't really understand it. If we're being honest, we don't actually know what the word ascension means, right? Like, some of you are like, I don't know what that word means. Help me. And then after hearing Acts 1, uh, read aloud, some of us may be wondering, did Jesus, like, take off, like, a rocket in outer space? Like, it was like, there's, like, you know, fire coming out of him? Or, better yet, uh, did he float off into the sky like the man from Up, like, attached to a hot air balloon? That's always the imagery I think of, right? Like, Up's floating away. Ed, is that his name? Mr. Ed, something like that? Anyway. I don't know. Uh, did he do that, though? Is that what Jesus did? Did he float up into the sky, like up? 
More importantly, why did Jesus even have to ascend into heaven in the first place? What does that mean, and why does it matter to us? And so today we're actually going to work to answer all of these questions, and in doing so, we're going to dispel the myth, dispel the myth that Jesus' ascension removes him from us. But rather, we're going to actually learn that Jesus' ascension guarantees his presence with us. So we're going to start with question one. Did Jesus take off into outer space or float off into the clouds far, far away? Some of you are like, I did not know I was going to come to church and we were going to answer that question today. That's a weird one. Uh, but let's be honest, several of us wonder that. Like, I for sure have wondered that in my spiritual life and journey. And the short answer to this question is no. And some of you are relieved. I am. Uh, in Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to take a second and actually dissect what this term heaven and earth means because it's actually used in our passage today, right? He ascended into heaven as they were looking up to heaven. A couple weeks ago, Alex actually unpacked the fact that in the Hebrew, heaven literally means skies. And in the Hebrew, uh, earth literally means land. So quite literally, when we hear heaven and earth in its most basic form, we are to understand it as the skies and the land. However, the biblical writers did not just use this word literally, they also used it metaphorically. So the heavens, or the skies, were meant to represent what we call God's space, or the space where God lived. And then the land, or the earth, was used to represent humanity's space, the space where humans lived. Notice, though, that both the words earth and sky are actual depictions of our physical world. And this is contrary to what we actually think about heaven, because usually when we think of heaven, we think of something that's like otherworldly, like off-planet, right? Supernatural. doesn't have anything to do with our physical, literal experience here on earth. And yet the biblical authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, use words associated with the physical, created world to describe heaven or God's space. Weird, right? Physical words about our created world to describe God's space. So here's the big idea. This is going to be shocking for some of you. God is not ultimately creating a supernatural space where he lives separated from humans. God's vision, actually, is for heaven and earth, God's space and human space, to become one. That they overlap. This is why we actually pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or in other words, God, please continue to unite human space and God's space together as one. And this better helps us understand what it means when it says Jesus ascended into heaven. But let's just dig a little bit deeper here. Question number two. What does ascension to the right hand of the Father mean? To actually understand what ascension means, I think it's important to trace the concept of ascension through the biblical narratives. We actually see it as a theme. Anybody in uh, like English class growing up, uh, your teacher would be like, okay, what are the themes of this book, right? And you're like, oh, I don't know, what are the themes? This is a theme in the Bible, okay? Ascension, it's a theme. And it all starts out with the Genesis account. 
Okay, so the Garden of Eden was set actually on a mountain. Some of you didn't realize that, but it's pretty clear in the scriptures that uh, the Garden of Eden, whether it's metaphorical or literal, was set on a mountain. Or as Tim Mackey calls it, he's kind of the founder of the Bible Project, he calls it the Cosmic Mountain Garden Temple, which, man, I want to go to the Cosmic Mountain Garden Temple. It sounds like something from Guardians of the Galaxy, and it just, like, really makes me happy. Anyway, so when Adam and Eve go up to this Cosmic Mountain Garden Temple, or the Garden of Eden, they exist in God's presence. They ascend up this mountain to be in God's presence. And while they are there, God gives him, or God gives them his words, his life. And then they are told to metaphorically descend, or literally descend from the mountaintop to give that to the rest of creation. What's really interesting as we continue down the biblical narrative, we see this happening also in the Exodus account. So God calls Moses and his fellow leaders, Moses' leaders, to come up to the mountain to actually have a meal with God. And while they're on this mountain, after they have ascended to this mountain to have a meal with God, God gives them instructions. In the words of Tim Mackey, Moses' priestly ascension is a recreation of the Eden ideal. Humanity resting within God's presence on a cosmic mountain temple. We see, yet again, this theme of ascension. So to be in God's presence, we must ascend, go up. Moving on in the Deuteronomy Code, we see instructions for a day of atonement. And on this day, every single year, the high priest would symbolically ascend to meet God. This is the actual language that's used in the scripture. And when he ascends to be God in his presence, he offers a sacrifice to cover the sins of the Israelite people. And the reason the priest does this once a year is to actually make a way for the Israelite people to experience the presence of God. Only through the priest's ascension and sacrifice can the presence of God be made available to the Israelite people. We see David later on in the scriptures actually go to the high hills of Israel to construct the temple that later on people will ascend to in Jerusalem. People would go up to Jerusalem. You remember that language in the scriptures? They would literally go up to Jerusalem singing the psalm of ascent as they were ascending into the presence of God, going to up, going up to the temple. This is exactly what Jesus is doing as he ascends or goes up to Jerusalem in those final days. He ascends up to Jerusalem where he is ultimately tried, dies, and lift, is lifted up onto a cross. Jesus later rises from the dead. I'm being a good English teacher today. You should be hearing all of these words, ascends, rises, up. It's a theme in the biblical narrative that we can actually trace. So when we get to this point in Acts, Jesus being lifted up into the clouds to be received, Luke is not necessarily giving us a play-by-play -play of what's happening. Like, this is not video cam footage of Jesus' ascension. No, he's actually giving us language that should evoke the same imagery of ascent that we have been reading in the biblical narrative so far. 
Luke is being a good English teacher here. He's continuing the theme of ascension. Remember, though, before their ascense up into the presence of God, Moses, the high priest, David, all of these people offered significant sacrifices to ascend. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what Jesus does. He offers the ultimate and the final sacrifice of his life before he ascends, joining human space and God space together in a beautiful, eternal integration for the first time in human history. In the words of Tim Mackey, Adam and Eve experienced the kind of overlapping togetherness with God, but only in part. But Jesus experiences it in its fullness because he chose to follow God from the beginning to the end. And his uniting of heaven and earth in himself is now complete. Or as he would say in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. Having ascended up as he did, Jesus now exists permanently in both God's space and human space as the ultimate priest. This is something that no human being had ever permanently done before. Not all could ascend in Israel, only the priests could. Even the priests could not ascend permanently, uh, they could only ascend temporarily. But in Jesus, we actually see the permanent ascension that makes a way for us, ordinary, everyday people, to occupy both God's space and human space at the same time, now, and forevermore. Which then leads us to our third question, why does ascension matter? Ascension matters because for the first time in human history, if we make the choice to follow Jesus, to ascend with him, God's presence is guaranteed. It's constant. It's now. It's available. It's here. It will always be here. Our very being, as the royal priesthood, as inheritors of Jesus' royal status as king seated at the right hand of the Father, becomes an actual temple filled with the Holy Spirit, a place where God's space and human space exists, coincides forever and all eternity. Again, this is a reality that those prior to Jesus did not experience. This is what the author in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellences, excuse me, excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you just occupied human space, now you occupy both God and human space together in Jesus Christ. Our bodies have become a temple that houses the presence of God itself. See, some might think that Jesus' ascension removes him from us. But as we have learned, Jesus' ascension actually guarantees his presence with us. 
And for the first time in human history, God's space and human space are fully integrating in us. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me. I believe that the actual understanding of this topic, understanding what ascension is, the reality that God's space and human space is integrated in us through Jesus is a really important step to experiencing God's presence in our life. It's really necessary. It's a good first step to start. But sometimes it seems near impossible to connect the head knowledge that you know about God's presence with the heart knowledge that you feel. Or maybe what you don't feel. Just this week, I'm literally sitting down to write a sermon about God's presence, and I had the thought, you know, I haven't really felt God much in the last couple days. Like, oh man, this is a good sign. You know, in that moment, I knew that God was present. Like, I knew in my mind. Like, the scriptures tell me, I know that through Jesus' ascension, God's presence literally lives in me. However, I don't feel that God's presence is with me. My head knowledge is not connecting with my heart. I have the theological chops, the knowledge, the facts, to know that this should be the case, but I just don't feel it in my bones. And I find myself, on a regular basis, relating to the prophet Jeremiah when he says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? I find myself wondering, like, how to understand my own heart? How do I connect this head knowledge with what I feel? And I think we all have moments in our spiritual formation where we really feel this acutely. And the question remains, how do we work to align that knowledge that's in our head with the thing that we feel in our heart? So today, I want to offer just maybe a few suggestions to help us do that. But before I actually do, I want to give a quick disclaimer. Because sometimes when we don't feel God's presence, we think like there's got to be something wrong. Like I messed up somehow, I sinned, I haven't been practicing my spiritual disciplines, I haven't been praying enough, maybe God doesn't care about me, maybe I've misunderstood who God's character is, like something's got to be wrong. Even Alex, Alex and I were dialoguing about this sermon this week. Alex was even reminded of several moments uh, four or five years ago when he felt God so acutely and felt zero encouragement from the people around him that just kept saying, like, keep praying, keep raising your hands. You know, don't you feel the presence of God here today? Like, what a slap in the face when you don't. You're like, oh, no, I don't. I don't feel it. I don't feel the presence of God. Dallas Willard, in his book called Renovation of the Heart, he actually defines spiritual formation as sinking the head and the heart. This idea that spiritual formation being a lifelong task, right? The desire to look more and more like Jesus is a lifelong discipline in learning how to connect our head and our heart knowledge. It doesn't happen overnight. 
It doesn't happen immediately. We take five steps forward and three steps backward. We think we figured it out and then we realize we're right back where we were. And so in moments where we don't feel God's presence, instead of feeling like there's something wrong, like we're missing the mark, that we are inherently bad, what would it look like to take it as a moment to say, this gives me an opportunity to take one more step in my spiritual growth? Like one more step in learning who Jesus is, becoming like him, drawing closer to him. Getting our head knowledge and our heart knowledge to sync up. Learning to feel the presence of God more and more is a learning process. It's a journey. It's part of being human. And let me assure you, it's perfectly normal. You're not crazy and you're not alone. And so with that being said, I want to jump into just a few suggestions, a few things for us to utilize in our own life as we work to connect some of that head knowledge with our heart knowledge. So suggestion one is, it's pretty simple, but it's a hard one to do. Slow down. Slow down. In the words of Dallas Willard, hurry is the great enemy of our spiritual lives today. We're on our phone 24-7, filling our free time with Netflix, late for work, excuse me, speeding through traffic, too concerned with making more money, busy, busy, busy. And when we do actually have a moment where it's like strangely quiet all of a sudden, we have a moment to sit down or to think. All of those things we've been pushing to the periphery come front and center. Our minds become like crazy darts. All of those tabs that are open on your computer become your thoughts, right? We're so distracted, we can't focus on what's in front of us. We feel so out of control. So it can feel practically impossible to pray or to sit or to listen or empty of our minds of all of that garbage. As the mystics say, the problem is not that God is absent, but we become absent. We're just not there. We're gone. And sometimes one of the best ways to help our heart catch up to our head is to just simply slow down. To remove the distractions. To not listen to a podcast on your ride to work. I'm so guilty of that. To actually give yourself space to listen, to hear, the process, to pray. And hopefully in those moments, you find that God's presence has been with you all along. You just didn't notice it. just didn't see that he was there. So suggestion one, slow down. Suggestion two, for getting our head and our heart knowledge to intersect, to sync up, is practice gratitude. You know, in moments where we feel God's absence, it can be really hard to express, like, anything related to abundance, right? When you feel like you're in the desert, you're like, why would I express anything that has to do with, like, water or life? And I very much felt this way. 2021 was probably one of the hardest years for Alex and I. I think we both would say that. It's kind of one of those um, seasons where you're trying to be really resilient, so you're just, like, putting your head down and doing it. But in the midst, you're, like, slightly falling apart, and you're like, what's wrong with me? 
Uh, and so the beginning of 2021, I started seeing a counselor and we had been working through a pretty difficult uh, situation and she gave me some homework and she said, I want you to sit down this week and I want you to write out everything that you're grateful for. And I was like, so annoying and miserable and I like kept putting it off because I was like that's the last thing I want to do right now uh, but finally because you know I'm like a type A person and I want to get an A on my homework I sat down and I'm like okay I'm gonna do this so I submit to her instruction and I find myself practicing gratitude and it's like I do it a little begrudgingly like I'm not really thinking for anything like big it's like I'm like focus on small things easy things for you to do <laughs> So it's like, God, thanks for my house, you know, the place where I live. Thanks for my husband, he's pretty great. Thanks for the coffee that you made me this morning. Thanks for the weather outside, it's so nice. As I start going through this list, I begin not only realizing where God has been present in my life all along, but I begin to feel his presence. It's like in being able to recognize it, I feel it. I think sometimes you have to practice gratitude to remember where God is present and at work in our lives to ultimately feel God's presence and work in our lives. Practicing gratitude can actually help us recognize where God has been at work and where he is present. So slow down, practice gratitude. The third suggestion is read the scriptures. You know, every morning, uh, most mornings, I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm too holy. There are mornings I miss it. But every morning, hopefully, it's my desire, my heart, I wake up and I open this uh, nifty little guide called Seeking God's Face, Praying with the Bible Throughout the Year. And it's less a devotional, more just a way to help uh, me connect with scriptures and pray prayers that have been prayed for centuries. Um, and I've used it for the last couple years to really guide me through my scripture meditation. And this is the instructions that it gives me every day after I read the selected scripture passage. It says this. Remind yourself that you are in God's presence. Remind yourself that you are in God's presence. Read the passage of scripture again. Notice how God may be speaking to you through his word. Dwell on a word or a phrase that jumps out to you. Let your heart respond to God in prayer. Take refreshment in his presence. I think sometimes you forget that the scriptures can actually, we can, excuse me, God's presence can actually be felt through the scriptures. This is what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 means when it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of our soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We're discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. What does my heart mean, God? <laughs> Why is my heart so fickle? Sometimes you forget that the words of God, the scriptures, are actually his recorded presence. 
his way of like tangibly being here with us in a moment. So we can work to connect that head and that heart knowledge through several different practices, but a few suggestions, slowing down, practicing gratitude, and reading the scriptures. Here's the deal. There will be moments in life where we don't feel God's presence. Where maybe we even lean into the suggestions I've been given today, and you're like, eh, no, not feeling it. It's not working. But let me encourage you today to continue to put one foot in front of the other. To trust in the knowledge that God is there. Knowing that the sinking of our head and of our hearts is a lifelong task of learning to unite God's space and human space together in us. Let's pray today. Lord, as we approach a time of confession, communion, and response, I'm burdened by even my own inability to connect my head with my heart. The knowledge of your presence that's guaranteed through Jesus' ascension with the feeling of presence in my being. where you feel absent, where you feel so far, I pray that you would help us to sink our head in our heart knowledge. Help us to notice where you're at work. Help us to slow down long enough to hear your voice. Help us to feel comforted. scriptures, by your word, your recorded presence. May we on this journey called life, on this journey of spiritual formation, on this journey of uniting God's space and human space in us, may we learn what it's like to actively and always feel your presence. To acknowledge that you are there to not feel alone. Make that real for us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would find that listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.